to the Biology Society of South Australia podcast, where we bring you conversations on all things biological in our state. I'm your host, Brad Bianco, and today our guest is Haley Merigo. Haley is a PhD candidate at the University of Adelaide studying flowering periods and eucalypts. Haley, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. Great. So I would like you to tell me a little about yourself and how you got interested in ecology and what your particular interests are in ecology. I guess it started out, so when I was younger, I was always interested in knowing things and, and the environment and animals and plants have a lot of facts. So I got into that side of things. So then I decided to do a degree in environmental science and just, it was full of, full of fun things to know. And uh, in particular, I probably at that stage started asking more questions, going, what's this, what's that? So I didn't naturally have a questioning, like what's this plant? Um, sort of idea growing up but um, since getting a bit older and looking at things and going and seeing what probably my main thing that I remember was I used to catch the train uh, every day to go to uni and I'd pass these trees and I'm like, I really want to know what those trees are I didn't really think much of it and then I ended up studying eucalypts so there were eucalypts I was passing and now I can name every one of them <laughs> so that's so the funny I actually had a very similar experience where at one point in my life I realized that I didn't know what all these plants were around me and to me that felt kind of strange and you know from an evolutionary perspective that's a very unusual state to be in to not know the organisms you share your environment with so I can I can totally relate to that another thing um my mum also had a book of animal facts and I just remember going through them and being like oh the giraffe is the tallest mammal and you know those kinds of facts really captivated me as a kid too that's really yeah, cool. Yeah, that's, that's exactly the, the way I, I had it. And also, like, looking out to a landscape and not knowing anything. And then every little thing that you found out that was new, that landscape suddenly became so much more interesting. Like, oh, Definitely. this bird and this tree and this... Definitely. Um, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. And so you just get more and more absorbed. So that's, I've basically snowballed into loving the environment, ecology and conservation and all those sort of things. So is your particular interest plants or plants and animals or the intersection of the two? It's it's the interaction between the two, but probably more so plants. Um, and I've been getting into birds a bit late, lately too. I started in plants um, with my PhD and then I've, I started doing bird surveys because the plants are pollinated by birds. They're also pollinated by insects, but the, the birds were easier to spot and I just started learning those and, and then they're... Um, you know, you never know what you might find, what might pop up in an area, or you can rock up to, to, to some trees and go, oh yeah, he's still there, that one's still there. Yeah. Um, so a bit of both. The interaction is the main bit that I'm interested in. Yeah, pollination is definitely that key interaction there. Yeah. It is, yeah. So tell us a little bit about how you came across your PhD study and what your study involved. So it, it probably first started um, with my honours. So, uh, so I did my undergrad and one of the... Uh, facts that I found out from undergrad was about mistletoe birds. So mistletoe birds eat the mistletoe fruit, um, which is really sticky. And so in order, so it has to pull it out, but it gets stuck to its bum, essentially. Um, so it has to wipe its bum on the tree in order to deposit the seed. And then it can, the seed uh, infiltrates the bark and it grows from there. So it's a parasitic plant that grows on, on trees. And I got really interested in that. And um, there was a project that for I could do for honours, which was looking at the distribution of mistletoes through a eucalypt woodland, so the planted eucalypt woodla woodland um, in Monato. So there's about, there's a, a heap of different species of eucalypts and non-eucalypts planted uh, in the 70s at Monato. And 
um, there's probably in the areas that I looked at, there was probably about 50 different species. So the mistletoe could, it was a, is a generalist, it's Amaena macquellii, so drooping mistletoe. It can um, grow in a whole heap of different hosts. So I was looking at how its distribution, like rural distribution occurred through that woodland because some, some trees it would grow better and some trees it would grow worse. Um, but because of that, I did, I did, bird, I did um, surveys of those trees and so I started learning all of these eucalypt species. And it just got more and more interesting. Like I knew this one, I can know that one. And, and suddenly I got uh, like very interested in mistletoe in, sorry, in uh, eucalypts and the things that were using eucalypts. So often birds such as New Holland honey eaters would come in and use the mistletoe flowers, but also would then spend time in the eucalypts. So I sort of got into eucalypts um, through my honors. Um, and then I started looking at the pollination of eucalypts. Cool. And what were some of the key findings from your PhD study then? So there were some species, there was one in particular, um, Eucalyptus brockwayi, um, which is... that is, South Australian? No, it's Western okay, Australian. I've never heard of it. So <laughs> there's a, a lot of Western Australian eucalypts in this woodland. Um, it, mistletoe grows fantastically on it. it can, they can get like uh, two metres wide and, and long. Wow. And, but they do, this, the eucalypt that's on looks great still, like it's, it's not in any way affecting it and it can end up, I think I counted the most mistletoes I counted on one of those trees was 72. It held 72 mistletoes, was doing fine. <laughs> and then there'd be other trees, um, uh, Eucalyptus spatulata, which is also Western Australian, um, and it, would ha- it could have 50 mistletoes on it, but they were all tiny. So they'd never managed to get to reproductive size, but they managed to persist enough um, to stay on the tree. So I thought that was very interesting. So something like that brock, the mistletoes on that brockway eye, um, it's likely that a mistletoe bird would eat the fruit and probably pull it back into that same tree. Um, and that will ha- that's the way it ends up with more in there. But for the spatulata, it would obviously be collecting fruit from a different mistletoe on a different host tree and bring it into that tree. So perhaps there was some kind of preference um, by the mistletoe bird for using that tree because that's the only way it those seeds got in there, not by foraging in amongst the tree and then pulling the same seed from the same posts. So that was one of the things that I discovered. There was also one species, but I've since found mistletoes on them that didn't have any mistletoes, um, and that's Eucalyptus intertexta. And another Western Australian? No, it's <laughs> it is South Australian. It is in South Australia. Um, I think it's a bit more widespread. It is outside of South Australia, but um, it's not found. In that area, right? Um, <laughs> they had some interesting ideas on reveg in the seventies. They did, they really <laughs> did. I think anything that they could find that was popular in nurseries is what went into. Yeah. So actually, a lot of the species that are um, monato in the plantings are, are street trees. So you find it in people's gardens. Um, they're all big trees, and they're probably quite inappropriate for garden trees, but they're, they're all through the, the Adelaide suburbs. Mm. Um, but yeah, so um, intertexta didn't have any mistletoes on it, even though it was right next to these brockaway eyes with massive numbers of mistletoes on them. Um, but in the flinders, I've seen um, intertextures with mistletoes on them. So obviously just at Monato for some reason, didn't end up with any mistletoes on them. So there are a few of my results from that. Right. So I did a little bit of background uh, reading on some of the things that you sent me. And one of the things I found particularly interesting was this idea of eucalyptus leucoxalan, the South Australian blue gum having a extended flowering period and different flowering periods in different parts of its range. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I can go into that. So it's it's all the same species, Eucalyptus acroxylin, um, and there are so there are different populations 
um, or like different areas that have different flowering times. So basically in summer, autumn, winter and, sp winter and spring, you'll find some eucalyptus, lacoxylin tree flowering somewhere. Um, and it's, so within populations, so um, individual trees within those populations also have sort of a spread out flowering time. So they don't all flower at the same time. Um, one tree will start earlier, you know, there'll be a sort of peak flowering where a lot of them are flowering and then some will be later. So there's early, middle and late flowering within populations. And then as a, as a whole, over the region, there are ones that flower in. So there's almost coming into flower will be our first population <laughs> for this year. So from the um, buds that grew over spring, summer, um, the first one will be around Wadmore Park area. So just into the, the little northeast. Um, a lot of those trees in the northeast have been cleared, so perhaps there would have been more, but that's right. that's a population that has um, autumn flowering. And then um, doesn't matter which way you go, north, south, east, west, you'll find winter flowering ones, and you'll find summer flowering ones. So there isn't an environmental gradient. There isn't is not north to south or something like that. There's no really obvious um, environmental gradient. You could, if I look into it really closely, there is sort of a radiation from sorry north and south and east and west. So there's sort of winter flowering in the, in the central um, Mount Lofty ranges and then as you head sort of more extreme it goes towards summer um, but that's not guaranteed you also find some winter flowering ones in the north and so it's a bit mixed there's no real obvious um, shift in in flowering time. Do we understand why a plant like eucalyptus ocloxylin would have this really spread out flowering time? Not exactly but there it is uh, a major a nectar provider um, and it is bird pollinated it's also insect pollinated but birds are one of their major pollinators um, because they produce quite a lot of nectar um, having quite a large um, bud and flower uh, and it's and birds can move quite large distances so there's always potential that there's long distance movements um, that could go for lots of kilometers we don't know so potentially that's how it's spread is by having such mobile pollinators um, but other than that who knows and there's obviously some plasticity within um, its genetic makeup that allows it to flower early or you know flower early in the season or late in the season so the, the reason why some I think that some flower so or in autumn is that those trees can uh, advance their the rate of their floral structure production so they'll speed up their faster at producing their buds than say a summer flowering one so it takes longer for it to get to a stage where it's ready to flower right so i think that's that's why they some can flower in autumn because they're just a little bit faster at, um producing their their flowers than the ones that flower in summer i can i can imagine that if you're planning revegetation if well i guess the first question would be is flowering time heritable for this species I suspect it is. There's been no uh, studies on it and no genetic uh, analysis of flowering time as it is, um, in, in the sense that if I take mm. this individual, does its offspring? Yeah. Um, so no one's done time. that study? No one's done that study. Um, I've recently started, so I've collected seed from those different populations. So I've got an autumn, winter, um, spring and summer flowering population that I've collected seeds from and I've of growing them up and planted them out but it takes five to ten years for them to that's to a flower. project that'll go further than your phd i imagine exactly but um i'm pretty sure it's heritable for for two main reasons within a population you can have two different individuals that are right next to each other that have 
vastly different flowering times. One can flower at the start of its population's flowering season and then the next one can start later on and they might not even overlap. Even though they're experiencing the same conditions, they're flowering at two different times. And you can also have populations that are somewhat nearby and have the same thing, so they just don't have overlapping flowering times within those populations, mm. even though they're experiencing roughly the same environmental conditions. Is bluegum unique among eucalypts to have this kind of really dispersed flowering period time, or is this common for eucalypts? I have never even heard of this before. It's not that I've never heard of any others that flower for such a long period, so they have almost all year round flowering yeah. in some in some individuals like some populations but there is general so other species you know when you look at the um guides mm. and they say flowers between you know, winter winter and autumn autumn winter yeah. or spring and summer so they do have some level of you know six months that over which time they may have flowering in all of the populations um but nothing that's basically all year so it's it's the Longest flowering of any eucalypts that I know of. Oh, cool. There, there are. Uh, what probably makes Eucalyptus phacoxylon special is that even its summer flowering populations do flower for a reasonably long period of time, in relative to other species. So it it still has two months or three months roughly of um, over which the population flowers, um, while something like Eucalyptus camagulensis, so river red gum it flowers, its whole population will go through its flowering in six weeks. Wow. wow. So, and that's pretty well set. So there might be some shifting a little bit, but for the most part, um, it's it'll happen over six weeks. While um, the winter flowering populations of Eucalyptus phacoxylon can flower over three months. That's why, like that's the, the whole population. While the individual tree probably goes somewhere around that as well. So two and a half, two months. So you, you mentioned um, you collected some seed and have done some propagation and that'll be an experiment for maybe someone else's <laughs> honours project. What other kinds of experiments did you do for your PhD? Uh, for my PhD, there is actually one little experiment I did. Um, so I was trying to work out uh, what affects uh, floral production from year to year. Uh, and so one of the things I did was I removed all the flowers from a whole of trees uh, in order to see if um, in that year, they, because I removed the flowers, they wouldn't produce any seed. So with the next year, they try and produce twice as many in order to compensate for it. So I um, found some populations of trees that I could reach because I had to remove all the trees from them, so they had to be relatively small trees. Removed all of the flowers off of, I think I ended up with 32 trees, um, and then it returned the next year uh, to see if they'd produce twice as many. Unfortunately, they didn't. Nothing produced anything. So the, my controls and my experimental trees, they they weren't going to flower that year, regardless. So I even for, for environmental reasons, or just that's naturally what they'll do. Sometimes they'll skip a flowering. They'll period. skip a flowering period. Oh wow, that's so unfortunate. That, <laughs> <laughs> so the species I did that on was um, Eucalyptus intertexta. Uh, oh, sorry, not intertexta. Uh, Eucalyptus incrustata, and it doesn't necessarily flower every year. While something like Lacoxylon will generally flower every year so I, that was so just some years it wasn't going to flower i did retest the same experiment on a different species eucalyptus cosmophila same thing happened it's like <laughs> i had to give up on that experiment but uh, what i did find um by i went the opposite way around um i then um picked some eucalyptus cosmophilas and i hand pollinated them 
um, to basically, oh, they were really good flowering years and I hand pollinated them. So they had a full set, everything was, was well pollinated, it set its full set of fruit. And then I came back the next year to see if it had produced any flowers because if you've produced a lot of fruit and seed, do you really need to flower the next year? Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't. So we have found that they, they didn't produce any flower the next year. That's interesting. So, wow. Yeah. Cool. So I guess the thing I was thinking about with the question about uh, heritability was if you're planning uh, revegetation with something like floral resources for birds and, you know, woodland birds, we know Dave Payton, we know that woodland birds in the Mount Lofty ranges are in decline and have been in decline and are going to be in decline unless we start seriously restoring habitat. But have you thought about if we can sort of guide our revegetation or tailor our revegetation with floral resources in mind, given that a species like Wukoxland can flower year round if you take those plants and put them in one spot? Exactly. That's exactly what I've done. So I, I saw that these different populations could flower at different times. And I thought whether um, putting all of those floral resor- resources in one spot so that they do produce nectar year-round could help honey eaters. Um, so honey eaters basically have to feed on nectar or get their energy all year-round. Hence the name honey eaters. And hence right? the name honey eaters. So they do feed on some <coughs> r- insects and whatnot, but for mostly they feed on, on nectar. Um, and their major, one of their problems in that the reason why they're declining is the habitat loss. But one of the the habitat that they've lost is good quality eucalypt woodlands, essentially. They've lost all of that nectar supply. So they have to move further distances or even just moving in general is risky for birds to find nectar. Um, so c- kind of how they forage is that if they've got a nectar source, they'll stay there for a while and then they'll start doing seeing what they could find, heading out, and um, if they find a good source of nectar, they'll stay there. But if they don't, they'll keep coming back, going out. This is most likely what happens. Um, And the more you do that and you don't find nectar and your nectar supply where you know it is is running out, um, then survival is is a bit more difficult. So if we provide a year-round supply of nectar in one spot, and you could do this uh, in two ways. So one is using a species like Eucalyptus for Coxlin, taking those different populations that flower at different times, planting them in one spot. And so those in themselves can provide a year-round supply of nectar. But also picking species, and they can be ones that naturally occur in those areas, so that that fill in, in those gaps. So essentially, you, you also plant ones that flower in autumn, winter, spring, summer, so that they, in case for one year Eucalyptus Coxlin doesn't flower, one of these other species might still flower and then you've still got a year-round supply of nectar. So it's like a, a vegetation buffet. Exactly, yeah. Native <laughs> bird cafe. Yeah, native bird cafe, that's cool. Um, so I did um, test this. I wanted to test if providing a year-round supply of floral resources would maintain honey eaters. And I actually did um, bird surveys out at Monato. So Monato has those 50 different eucalypt species. They almost, they pretty much provide a year-round supply of nectar. Um, it's a range of different species, um, not just native ones that would have occurred here, so some might be more or less palatable, but still they provide year-round. So I did a year's worth of um, bird surveys and floral surveys in those areas to see if um, the bird numbers were maintained or if they were maintained according to how much nectar is available compared to remnant vegetation that only has a few species left. Yeah. So I would, in those remnant vegetation, I would have those huge spikes when those, say, the blue gums uh, and Eucalyptus rotorata and Eucalyptus porosa were flowering. 
I'd have the spikes, um, but then nothing for the rest of the time. And in Minato, I had maintained bird numbers. So there is a precedent. So there is a precedent, yeah. That's interesting. So I guess that wasn't obviously wasn't their intention when they planted the Minato woodlands. I don't think they had any idea it would be so good for I birds. I very much doubt it. <laughs> but is anyone else, has anyone else tried this revegetation strategy or is this something that you have pioneered? This is something that I've pioneered. So David Payton and myself came up with it on a on a drive. So we were out doing bird surveys and we're, and we're like, we could we could make this into a thing. So we and, and we decided to test it. So we're, we're the, I'm the first that I know of who's tried this. So people have planted um, some some version of this, but they just haven't realised it because you can use native yeah. species as long as you've got a good mix of eucalypts. And typically, there probably would have been um, a year worth of supply supply worth of floral resources in remnant in native good intact vegetation before European settlement. Because between, for example, out on around Monato where you would, um, the eucalypt species you, you will find, um, or you should find, are Eucalyptus macoxylin, Eucalyptus odorata, Eucalyptus porosa, uh, Eucalyptus gracilis, I think it's this one. Phalanx, white mountain. Yeah, phalanx. And those, all of those species basically flower, produce flowers that would produce nectar all year round. Right. So you, they might have to move a little bit further, then, you know, then you know, if we planted all the their nectar resources in one spot, but it's much shorter than what they'd have to do now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like if a bird has to leave one piece of isolated habitat for another piece, and it's just opening itself up to so many risks, I can definitely understand that. You know, if you've got one spot that has a year-round source of nectar, the the amount of risk that those birds have to take to feed is so much reduced and that's really what we need at the moment for uh, a lot of these declining woodland bird species. Exactly, we really do. And Monato, the other thing that's really lucky about Monato is they planted 1,600 hectares of that woodland. Um, So inadvertently they've made a good little refuge for not just honey eaters, that area is great for seed-eating birds as well and insect-eating ones. So things like restless flycatchers, which are declining in the Mount Lofties, like quite majorly, so... Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I was just thinking, I sort of, when I came into the conservation field, there was a lot of talk about local provenance that, you know, there should be a radius of where you should collect a particular seed from and that if you're planting that species, the seed that you propagated should have been collected from some defined radius. Have you come up in any opposition speaking to people in the conservation field about this issue of local provenance? I have actually, um, because the species for my experiment, when I was um, starting this experiment of collecting the different um, blue gums from the different populations, I did come up against people going, oh, are you sure? Because I, I collected um, seed from Inman Valley to Para, uh, to near Gawler, a place called Parrowoodland. And so I've got the whole range of, of different environments in there as well. Um, and I, people would go, oh, you've, that's quite far away. But really, again, there's such a range of environments that this species live in, lives in Then what's to say that it needs to be nearby for it to grow the best? There's, there's no reason for that. And I think now there is a general shift away from local provenance, especially with climate change being such a problem mm-hmm. and, and it getting drier and you wanting to plant species that will um, survive better in drier yep, habitats. definitely. So I think there is a shift away from it. And I, from the first uh, year, or two, this is two years since I planted them, um, in the first year I had quite high deaths, but that was because it was an incredibly dry year. It was incredibly dry when we put the, the plants in, just that winter we'd had no rain. 
Um, and so I had, uh, I have a 35% survival and there's no, no particular um, area that I got them from died more than the other one. Right, it was just random. Was the just ones random. that died, died. Exactly. If anything, but not statistically yeah. <laughs> um, significant, the ones that I um, grew from nearby uh, survived the worst. Hmm. But I suspect that is quite a small population, so I suspect um, there might have been a seed-based issue with that. Right. There's not a lot of diversity in those, in those seeds. So from your PhD studies, you worked with a number of different plants. Is there a particular plant or a pollinator of that plant that you think is your favourite? Well, Eucalyptus coxlin is a, is definitely my favourite, just in how weird it is in its flowering times. And really diverse, right? There are quite a number of subspecies. Yeah, there's a lot of subspecies. I'm focusing on the one, um, the Lococcolin coxlin subspecies. Um, but I did actually also look at um, Eucalyptus fasciculosa, which is pink gum. And it, ha- it actually has um, some difference in flowering time too. So the northern uh, populations of pink gum that I look at flower in well, late summer, early autumn, while the southern ones flower in spring. And there's no in-between. There's no um, species, no populations flowering in winter of that. And they're not distinct subspecies? No, nope, they're the same, the same species. So. so that's quite interesting. But actually possibly the most interesting thing that I've come out of that's come out of my PhD is in flowering time of both um, blue gum and of pink gum uh, in they had a few weird years in there so 2010 it was sort of the, the breaking of the drought and 2016 was also quite a, a high rainfall year towards the end so 2010 quite high rainfall towards the end and in both of those years my uh, eucalyptus of coxlin populations most of them flowered early so my first population that flowers in autumn only flowered like a little bit early and then each subsequent one in order as they usually would flower started flowering early to the point where I had spring my spring flowering populations flowered in autumn that's how extreme the the difference was in those two years so do you suspect there's some environmental cue that triggered this onset of flowering and they still flowered in the same sequence just earlier yep exactly so I think whatever happened um climate wise or weather wise caused them to speed up the how fast they developed their buds and then caused them to flower early. And so I had, so my blue gums did, uh, my blue gums, <laughs> um, those populations flowered early, but also uh, my uh, no, uh, southern populations of Eucalyptus fasciculosa flowered in autumn. So they were six months out as well. So they flowered at the same time as, as the northern populations usually do. So both of those species, it was a bit weird. Um, my... The, my uh, studies on red gums found that they mostly, because they flower in summer um, and most of that rain and weird weather happened and then we hit winter, that they actually flowered late. So my blue gums flowered early and the pink gums flowered early, but the red gums flowered late. And that's probably because that they, they're summer flowering and we had a whole heap of rain. And it went on for ages. You know, we had the big blackout here because mm-hmm. of all of that, um, the big storms. And that probably delayed their flowering. So we've got one species flowering early and one species flowering late. And that's actually possibly um, more of an issue I- in terms of climate change uh, for with our... So mismatch in flowering time then becomes a problem. So we've got um, the eucalypts of coxlin flowering outside of spring. So they've moved out of spring, which is prime breeding season for birds. Yeah. 
And that pr- if that happened in a lot of species, or eucalypt species that flower and spread, you've suddenly developed a gap in the flowering season mm. where floral resource is unavailable. So that becomes one of the other major issues that I've kind of come across while studying these eucalypts. Wow, there's a lot there. That's really <laughs> interesting though. And I love that you say my eucalypts because it just shows how passionate you are about the study and, and all of these things. It's really cool. Thank you. I get. I shouldn't dance with more flies. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> trees, but this is a safe space. <laughs> <laughs> well, Haley, thank you so much for taking the time to come and have a chat with me. It's been a really fun podcast. Yeah, this has been great. And uh, is there anywhere that people can find you on social media or find out more about your research? Yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter and on Instagram. So if you uh, just Google my name, you'll find both of those. Um, or you'll have them as links. I hope, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely put them in the show notes. Yeah, so I'll have both of those. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Cheers.